Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with director and actor Keith Gordon. As an actor, you know Mr. Gordon for his exceptional work in films like Dress to Kill and Christine. His directing work includes Waking the Dead and the TV series The Killing. In this conversation, we discuss Mr. Gordon's fascination with Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. I want to get into your introduction to Kubrick, but I came to it from a perspective of Kubrick films never really reached me. And so I thought to myself, what am I missing? Uh, maybe I should do a special series on, on my show, and that'll give me an excuse to kind of delve back into his work. And the more I understood Kubrick and the way he worked and what his particular obsessions were, were the, the more I appreciated his films, and now he's my favorite filmmaker. And a lot of those films that hadn't uh, that hadn't reached me before are m- among my favorites what an amazing and great process to go through um that's really cool i don't think many people do that uh, I-, I try to do it just as a civilian you know in terms of as a film fan i'll often go back to filmmakers that maybe i didn't get first time around and and, and i think with a lot of dense filmmakers whether it's antonioni whether it's fellini whether it's kubrick whether it's tarkovsky people who ask you to you know, really be a participant in the film and not just observe an easy story. Mm-hmm. I, I often find that it takes sometimes repeated viewings to kind of get what it is. I mean, even with Kubrick films, sometimes the first time I saw the film, now maybe it was also expectation, but the first time I saw The Shining, I didn't really respond to it, and I was kind of disappointed, and I'd been waiting for it, and it wasn't, you know, we'd all been told it would be the scariest film ever made, which was his claim and all that, and it wasn't until I saw the film a second and then a third time that I started to appreciate its genius for what it was, which to me is as much black comedy and comment on the nature of creativity and writer's block and all these other things. You know, but, but, but so much of our responses to films are what we go in with. And then I think difficult films, certainly Bergman took me, you know, repeated viewings of some of the films to get. And I, mm-hmm. think, that's, I, I think that sort of people used to get that idea more about movies in general, that sometimes you need to watch a movie more than once, and now I think we are a more impatient viewing audience by, in general, and, and, and not many people have the patience to do, and, we, and you're doing it on sort of a meta level, which is, which is really cool, and, and not only going through that, but then sharing that with others and doing it in a very kind of you know, formalized way, which I think is really quite an, an, an amazing way to do a project like that. You know, it's, it, I think that's what's so special about Kubrick and, and the great filmmakers of his ilk. It's it that their meaning kind of deepens for you as the years go by. I mean, it, as, as you change, the, the, the films kind of change with you. Uh, you know, I think of the a wonderful line that Pauline Kael wrote, and Pauline Kael was no fan of, of Kubrick, but it, she wrote it about another film that she said, you know, weeks and months and years after you leave the theater that first time, the ideas of this movie expand in your brain like a soft bullet. And that's exactly wow. how I feel about Kubrick's What did you write films. that about? I think it was Godfather 2. Huh. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, what a beautiful I, way of I've saying. I definitely it. had that experience with with not only Kubrick's films, but some of the some a lot of the films that if I made a list of like like my favorite fifty films, a lot of those films would be films that I wasn't blown away five minutes after they ended the first time I saw them. Mm. And 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 I think in talking to a lot of other people that that's not uncommon. Um, you know that that and I do believe with all art, certainly my experience, but I've, you know I know friends said the same thing. It is true. You brought up another good point, which is that as we evolve as people over the years, and you come back to art, you see different things in it. You know, as you have different life experiences, you're going to relate to things very differently. And I think that's true of painting or novels, or you know, as well as film. Yeah. Um, you know, we part of art is what we bring to it, and and I and I think that's very true. That you know, I'm 51 now, and I'm sure I see very different things in you know. Uh, a film, a love story, and a war story, whatever, than I would at 23. I mean, it's just it's just the nature of of, of aging is that you you get different you know perspectives. And part of it too, and, and tell me if you if you see this in his work as well, it's the lack of sentimentality, um, that the surface sentimentality that kind of yes. makes people miss the the compassion that's actually that is actually there. I, I, that's beautifully put. Um, you know, I, it's funny because people always think of Kubrick as very cold. Uh, you know, the cliche of him was his cold chess player, you know, and, and yet to me his films are tremendously humanistic. Um, I think he's very sad for the tragedy of the human condition and also finds the humor in it. Um, but yes, he doesn't give people easy surfaces. He doesn't give people easy sentimentality. He doesn't give people easy answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the films feel cerebral, I think, often on first encounters, because you're busy just going, well, what is this really about? What is really going on here? What does this mean? What you know? Um, I think it's on repeated viewings that often you can get into, you know, the the how heartbreaking James Mason is in in Lolita. How you know. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of his style is that it's not yeah it's not easy it's not it's not just giving you you know this this bouquet of roses up front saying okay come in and it's all going to be fine and simple and 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 we're going to give you what you want and I think yes that puts people off but I do think people miss I mean really how human his films are I mean I did just watch Eyes Wide Shut again last night and and one of the things that struck me was it was was how ultimately emotional and human that film is as much as it's a puzzle and it's a chess game and it's this and that and all those things it's also really about human frailty and sexuality and things that are very and, and not just from a removed distance um, I think there's a, a, he gets accused of remove in his movies all the time but I don't, I don't really find that to be the case at all and I find them far more insightful and emotional than, than most films that operate just on the surface yeah, and maybe you can speak to that aspect of his work uh, because you're a wonderful director. I mean, we talked last time about many of the films that you directed, and you know, I'm a tremendous admirer of, of many of your movies. Uh, but is there a, a battle between the think of it and the feel of it, and and, and making sure that they complement each other when you're dealing with material? Well, I think when when you're on a really good track, there isn't a battle. I think they're complementing each other. Um, you know, I think there are times <laughs> that you can slide off, and it's a, I think a, a danger that any filmmaker faces is sliding off one direction or the other. 
Um, I think Kubrick did a remarkable job of sliding off very, very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. And and almost always his films, I mean, his films might not be emotional in the traditional tearjerker sense, although, you know, I find, you know, the scene of the little kid's death in Barry Lyndon incredibly moving. I mean, he has scenes that are very, very moving Absolutely, movies. yeah. Uh, I mean, you could go through every film and find the scenes that, that are really quite emotional. But, but, but they're always, always visceral. Um, they're not just head experiences. They're always thrilling and upsetting and disturbing. And I mean, it's very hard to watch a Kubrick film with any engagement and not be viscerally affected, just right in your gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time that he's throwing very complicated ideas and sometimes contradictory ideas and theorems and you know about human behavior. But but I think what makes him a great filmmaker, why his films have lasted, is that he does do both well so brilliantly and so seamlessly. And I think a lot of you know wonderful filmmakers struggle and, and, and sometimes hit that magic mark and sometimes fall off one side or the other. And, and Kubrick, I think, over and over and over again, you know, you experience the film very, 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 very viscerally. And then you can then think about it as much as you want, too. But but there are images and moments and his use of music and his use of performances and his, that, that, you know, it's very hard to watch a Kubrick film and not feel something. Oh, yeah. And that gets forgotten by people. They don't write about it because it's, because what he makes you feel is complicated and sometimes uncomfortable and not easy, easily classified. But they're certainly not as distanced as, you know, I mean, you look at a lot of experimental films or whatever, and they really are head experiences. But, but Kubrick wouldn't have lasted the way he did and, and had the kind of massive following that he had and made films that really reached pretty damn wide audiences. I mean, considering the experimental nature of some of what he was doing, both stylistically and thematically and the ideas he was addressing and the kind of dark characters he often had and the, his films made a lot of money and i think that was because they also just work for an audience as an experience and as a visceral experience not just an intellectual one mm-hmm. and you mentioned I mean, that's kind of i think his unique genius is he took you know he took the experimental side of the michael snows and the brackages and all those people and brought some of those techniques to a very visceral kind of storytelling that you know you might associate more with traditional Hollywood films and managed to find a way to combine those two things and I think bring the best out of each. Absolutely, yeah. Ed, but you mentioned uh, be- being able to classify a film uh, just a little bit ago. And when I think about Eyes Wide Shut in particular, it- it- it's very hard to do that with-, with that particular film. I mean, what it's such a... Uh, a mysterious film to me, first and foremost, because I mean, what what is it? Is it a love story? Is it a mystery? Is it a is it a dream uh, or a nightmare? Yeah, exactly. The, the, the key question in that film is what is reality? I mean, you know, it's. I mean, for me, you know, it's based on a novel called Dream Novel. It's it's title Eyes Wide Shut to me implies that you're having an experience, but with your eyes shut, so you're not really seeing reality. Now, is that is that a, that it's a dream, or is that that we deny the realities of who we are. It's, you know, to me, his films pose lots of questions and don't give easy answers. And part of the delight for me of that, and going back to all, really almost any of the films, I mean, back to even Fear and Desire for all its, you know, wonky, you know, teenage, you know, uh, mm-hmm. pretentiousness, it still asks a lot of interesting questions and and makes you um, makes you kind of have a different experience every time you see the film. Uh, you know that's part of what's so cool about the movies is that you can see them, and I, I think almost every time I see a Kubrick film, and many of them I've seen, you know, in 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 the 20s and 30s of of times, 
but every time I see it, I almost always see something new or see a new way to look at the movie or realize, wow, this is funnier than I thought or sadder than I thought or more mysterious than I thought or scarier than I thought. And, and often my emotional reaction is very different with each viewing, and I think that speaks again to the richness of what he did with, you know, I mean, film to me is exciting because it's very, it works very subconsciously. And I think he was working both subconsciously and consciously with an audience and really had a, so many levels going on that you can keep going back to it. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I think there are great works of art that do that. I mean, every time I, I you know, I see Picasso's Guernica, there's mm-hmm. a detail in it I realize I've never seen before. Um, you know, with Kubrick, I feel that with it with, with every time I see one of the movies. I mean, it's like, oh, I didn't remember this that way. This is This is different than I thought, or my reaction is different, or... Oh wow! This is more, you know, it's more clearly, and and you know, often thinking I found an answer. It's like, oh, I see what it is. It's this. <laughs> and then I'll see the film again a couple of years later. And realize, oh no, that answer was maybe a little too facile, and there's maybe something deeper here. And certainly, again, just watching Eyes Wide Shut last night, I was, I was really struck by certain things in terms of how much he was playing with what is reality and when what is dream and and. How do we experience that? And also the dark humor of it came through much more this time to me. I mean, that essentially a lot of the story is about a man trying to have sex and being thwarted in every way possible mm-hmm. on just on a basically human level. And it's actually quite funny for all its mysteriousness and darkness. I mean, I found this time the black comedy of it really came through to me in a way that I think I'd acknowledge, but, but this time I, it really struck me much stronger than that in the past. Yeah. was was Did Kubrick play a major role um in your life when your film consciousness began to form? Well, he's really responsible for my film consciousness. I mean, I, I doubt... I mean, maybe I would be a, a filmmaker if it wasn't for him, but really what was probably... And you never know these moments when you're having them, but was a huge turning point in my life was when I was eight years old, when when uh, 2001 opened, or maybe I was seven. I think it was eight. Um, and he took me to that, and... You know, my, my my dad had no idea what he was getting, taking me to because he thought it was a film about rocket ships and things, and I was like most kids, I loved rocket ships and things. Um, he didn't realize he was taking me to an existentialist drama that was that dense. <laughs> but rather than being just overwhelmed by it or thinking it was boring, I flipped out for it. And it was my first encounter with a story that I couldn't explain. And rather than being frustrated by it, it was just my personality that I was... I just wanted to see it again and again and again because I wanted to sort of figure out the puzzle. Um, and that turned me on to films and filmmaking in a way that I'd never been before. I mean, I like movies, I guess, like every kid. But when I saw that movie, the idea that you could create such an amazing, magical, obsessive, creative thing, this thing that I, I, I dragged my, my poor dad back to over and over again and, you know, um, really opened my eyes to how exciting movies were. And it wasn't long after that that I started to really aggressively um, watch more movies and more difficult movies and more, more adult movies, and that carried on through my teenage years. But it was really 2001 that turned me on to film on a, on a much deeper level than I had ever experienced before. And and also turned me on to the, the idea of complicated storytelling and challenging an audience and all these things that became, for me, sort of, what I wanted to do as a filmmaker myself and the kind of projects that I've been drawn to and ideally want to try to make. and um, So it was, that was a huge turning point for me. Um, and it wasn't long after that that, you know, I, my dad took me to see a revival of Paths of Glory. And, you know, and very quickly, Kubrick became my favorite filmmaker, like by age 9 or 10. It was like, 
oh, this guy is like a hero to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, here I am 40 years later and nothing's changed. Do you, uh, because 2001 seemed to be, I mean, it's one of the classic films of, of all time, but did, did you know, did you, do you see a shift in his work from 2001 on? Because it, at that point, I mean, I think most cultured moviegoers looked upon him as a as kind of a deity among directors. Uh, do you think his career took a different path at that point? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, in terms of how he was perceived in Hollywood or any of that stuff or you know, remember I was still a kid and so I wasn't I was living in New York and, and then as a teenager, you know, going into films, you know, like Clockwork Orange and, and, and you know, I I wasn't I wasn't that aware of how, you know, how he was perceived by others until I guess a little later on. And to me, you know, really I don't know that there was that much difference, you know, from what I've read since in the perception of, say, a Doctor Strange Love and the perception of a Clockwork Orange. I mean, both were controversial films that dealt with subjects that made people very uncomfortable and were incredibly out there in their style. Um, you know, and I think that conti- I think that continued to be the case. But I think he'd already started down that path before 2001. I think 2001 was a sort of quantum leap into a sort of metaphysical filmmaking that. That he even stepped back from somewhat after that. I mean, these films after that went back to being more focused on, you know, smaller human stories. I mean, all even though if, even though they were grand. I mean, Barry Lyndon's a very big film, but yet it's ultimately a story, a very human story about one human being. Um, so, 2001 to me is a bit of a unique film in his canon in that it is it is it is so much about the ideas. Um, it's still an incredibly moving film to me, but he doesn't do it in 2001 so much through character. I mean, people have, have often commented, I mean, it's become a complete cliche, but it's quite true that the most human characters in 2001 are a computer and an ape. Um, and that's part of the theme of the film, I think, is how dehumanized we've become. Um, whereas I think all of his other films, even if characters were over the top or comedic or, you know, whatever, um, it's still they're ultimately really all character pieces. Uh, and 2001, I think, stands alone as a piece that really, I, I just don't think you can characterize it as a character piece. You can look at the characters, but but sort of the point really go he, he sort of transcends that in that film uh, in a way that's really, really interesting. Um, but to me, there's more, there's a lot in common when you look at his work before and after those films. Um, I think he continued to grow as a technician. I think he continued to um, grow in his bravery, but but really, I think you look at Lolita and and Doctor Strange Love, and and I don't think they're really in different universes from from Clockwork Orange or Full Metal Jacket or or, or Eyes Wide Shut. I, or, I think, or, yeah, or even something like uh, The Killing. I mean, The Killing has a touch of the existential and 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 it it a very cold irony, which was which was a characteristic that marked a lot of his films. Yes, yes, no, he was, that definitely, I mean, I probably, I, you'd probably say every one of his films had, had some levels of irony, although, again, I think sometimes people think of him as purely an ironic director, and that's where, to me, they miss a lot of what's so great about him, because what he managed to do, I mean, what, what makes The Killing a great film, and why it stands up now, is you feel really bad for Sterling Aiden at the end of that movie, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, there, it's all this kind of dark irony and everything, but it's not just detached and removed, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's, you know, he manages to somehow 
And it's it's an amazing thing that he does with his actors and with the way he tells a story and with what he does visually. That whether it's Alex and Clockwork Orange or or, or Joker in, in Full Metal Jacket or I mean, he creates these characters, you know, that really aren't very likable or sympathetic on the surface. And yet, if you didn't get invested in them, the film simply wouldn't work. Um, and he manages to do that without pandering. You know, he didn't soften the James Mason character in Lolita. The guy is objectively, you know, a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, his characters are often really awful in terms of the things they do, or at least deeply morally questionable at best. Um, and yet, you feel for them and care about them. And that, to me, is part of the secret of Kubrick that people overlook. They talk about the irony, and they talk about, you know, the, the darkness of the characters, and they talk about... But what, they, but, but what makes him different is that you care at the same time, and that's part of what makes it them very confusing and sometimes frustrating experiences for an audience, because what's well, like, well, am I supposed to like this person? Am I not supposed to like this person? Am I, uh, what am I supposed to feel? And that's, I think, I think part of what what is his genius, is his ability to recognize the dark and light in human beings simultaneously, and to make you horrified by a character's behavior, or at least deeply dis- questioning or disapproving, and at the same time see through their eyes and realize, you know, they're for the grace of God, go I, and that could be me. Um, and I, I, think I, I, I love that you just, uh, that's a beautiful way to explain it, because something you just said, uh, how am I supposed to feel? And I think that's kind of it's kind of a dirty thing in, Holly, in, in, in movies now, is that sense of, of ambiguity and not programming an audience to know exactly how they're supposed to feel at any given moment. And and, that's and, and sometimes actually quite intentionally saying to an audience, I'm not going to tell you how to feel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it would be very easy in some of his films, in many of his films, to have let people off that hook. But I, I also think when you look at many of the great films, you know, many of the things that we look at now, I mean, yes, certainly not what Hollywood likes to put out, because it's harder to sell. I mean, it's a harder product. It's not, it's not, it's not as appealing. It's, it, 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 it's asking an audience again to work. But, you know, how do you feel about Citizen Kane? I mean, how do you feel about that character? How do you, you know, he's an, he's an awful guy in a lot of ways, but boy, you also get involved with him. And he's, you know, I think, I think that's, that a lot of our great cinema, theater, a lot of our narrative pieces that are great novels um, involve, you know, these kind of incredibly deeply flawed characters, even nonfiction. I mean, look how fascinating somebody like Nixon is, how much more people write about those characters mm-hmm. than presidents that were kind of fun. And, you know, I mean, those are the fascinating characters in, in life, and I think Kubrick caught that in his films, that, you know, it's it's the complexities that make us interesting and and real and and vulnerable. It's our dark sides. It's our it's the fact that we have all of us have lurking within us a killer, um someone, you know, se- sexual animals that work on a very base level, manipulators that we but that but that those things, you know, aren't just evil, they're part of what makes us human. I mean, that it's taken to its most literal level in Clockwork Orange, which is all about that idea, that mm-hmm. if you take away free choice, you take away humanity. And free choice sometimes involves choices that are horrific. But if you without it, what do you have left except a, a race of robots? Um, and I don't think Kubrick was trying to solve that problem, because I think, I think watching his films, generally my sense is that he felt it was an insoluble problem because it was it was the human condition that we are 
both base and animal, and yet we are quite remarkable and capable of poetry and kindness and, and something more. But that but that, that base animal part of us is undeniable, and if we deny it, we are really in trouble. And I think uh, I think no character in in his films kind of encapsulates those contrasting colors better than Alex. I mean, because this this is someone who's completely monstrous. He's a thug and a rapist, but but he also has such a deep sense of of culture. Uh, you know, he's moved by by Beethoven. You know, he's absolutely and and you can't and, and, and he doesn't attempt to kind of justify those two sides. He he is what he is. Yes, he is what he is, and he is a product also of a society that created him, which is, I think, something that Kubrick was also very aware of. I mean, again, that's another duality. I mean, Kubrick to me is all about duality, um, you know, and, and that and that things, you know, everything is a yin and a yang, and, and that, you know, that there's a need for personal responsibility, and yet, you know, and Alex doesn't just come up out of nowhere, and in portraying the society around him and the sort of insane corruption of the political system around him that uses him and that, you know, it, it, he doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, and that a lot of, you know, who he is comes from growing up in a society that sort of helped create him as well. And I think that's true also for all of his characters, that they're trapped off often by cultural, you know, Barry, Barry Lynn didn't deal deals with it a lot, Guy Chut deals with it a lot. I mean, you know, he deals with also the insanity of society, and how if characters are sometimes monstrous, it's big, partly because they're a reflection of society that that, cre- that created them and that they have sprung from as a natural reaction, uh, which is also part of what makes his films disturbing because, you know, we, we, we often want an answer. We either want, you know, kind of those kind of socially liberal films that say it's all society's fault, or we want those sort of more right-wing deterministic films that say if you're bad, it's because you're bad and, you know, it's every... And Kubrick goes, it's not, again, it's not that simple, folks. You know, we are both individuals and parts of society we are both you know monsters and humanists that we both have rapists and beethoven within us mm-hmm. and i think that's really uncomfortable for people because we like answers i mean it's part of that which is also part of the human condition um you know i mean dr bill in in in, uh, in eyes wide shut is driven to answer things that can't be answered and kubrick sort of makes that flesh in terms of what happens to him that night but the bigger question of you know what is sexuality? What is marriage? What is what is passion? What is fantasy? What is reality? Are things that simply can't be answered. The edges are all just too blurry. And I think Kubrick took us to those blurry edges. I mean, you know, Full Metal Jacket. You know, when is a soldier a murderer? When is a soldier, you know, just a victim? When is a soldier? And and, and what's so great about his movies is whatever question he's asking. It's not that he refuses to answer in some kind of clever, I have the answer, but I'm not going to give it to you. But I honestly believe he, on a very deep human level, went, I don't know the answer either. I know these are important questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why his films are powerful, because they're not, you know, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, ambiguous film and theater and stuff, where I feel like there's sort of a bit of a snotty attitude on the part of the storyteller going, I know the answer, but see if you can figure it out. And I never feel that with Kubrick. I always feel like, I'm right in the, I, as a filmmaker, he's saying, I'm right in there with you. I don't know the answers either. I know these are important questions. Um, here's different, some different looks at that question. Um, but I, I, I'm not, I don't have the answers. It's, it's, it's an unanswerable question. And in that sense, there's a great poetry to his movies, which I think, you know, a lot of filmmakers that have such intellectual ideas don't have. But to me, his films work again on that very 
emotional poetic level as well because I think he was a searcher and a seeker as much as as he was somebody who ever felt he had answers. Well, and and you know the the war genre or or investigations of the phenomenon of war. I mean that's that's a very fertile ground to uh, investigate that that kind of sense of of moral ambiguity. Uh what do you think when you look at movies like Paths of Glory or Full Metal Jacket? What do you think marked his explorations of war that made them unique from from the other films that we've seen in the genre? Well, I think in you know, you 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 just hit on I think the single biggest one which is that he starts from a place that, that a lot of other people either don't... Most most films never get there that are war films, and then some films get there by the end, and that's the point. He starts from a point that war is morally ambiguous. It is um, it is insanity. It can only exist with a bunch of insane rules that make no sense, and puts human beings into, into situations where they have to deal with an insane situation. Uh both Taz of Glory and Full Metal Jacket do different ways. But ultimately you have people that you know, you you have people who are victims of much larger societal insanity uh and and are trying to function within that, but how can you function when what, what the very essence of what you're doing is insane. You know, the absurdity in, in Taz of Glory of trying to take a few acres of ground and and the loss of thousands and thousands of lives over the anthill, over something that's utterly meaningless in, in the shape of the war or global politics, and yet thousands of people dying over it. Uh, in, in terms of Full Metal Jacket, the whole moral ambiguity of the war in Vietnam to start with, the idea that that whole war uh, was a war that in some ways was without reason and without meaning. And, and you know, as LBJ's, you know, tapes and everything is real, you know, even the president's kind of knew this is unwinnable and it's a mess and we're not really doing anything, and yet it went on and on and on. So you're dealing with with essentially a same, I mean, you might as well set your films in an, in an insane asylum. And, and I think Kubrick's sort of brilliant in terms of dealing with war is he starts from that place. You know, there have been, there have been some movies that get to that place, but he starts from this is insanity. Now, take human beings and put them in this insanity, and what happens to them? What what reveals itself? Where is where is the nobility? Where is the savagery? Where is you know where is again is you know when are soldiers murderers? When are they victims? When are they both? Um, and to me, that's I guess what makes his war films unique is that is that he's not he's sort of going beyond that sort of first grade thing of war is insane. He, he's he's busy in a master's class of yeah yeah we get all that stuff. Now what does that show us about people? And mm-hmm. I think that's what makes his war films so unique um, is that he's sort of going beyond that as a starting point into the brains of people in the middle of it. Um, you know, so that again, when when you know Vince D'Onofrio blows his brains out in Full Metal Jacket, you are horrified by it, and yet you understand it as a uh-huh. response to the world that he's in. Um, that's a pretty amazing thing to take an audience through. Uh, when at the end of Full Metal Jacket, and I don't want to do spoilers for people, but I imagine anybody listening to this has seen these films. <laughs> but you know, when they shoot this young, very you know beautiful, vulnerable young girl. You know, is it an act of mercy? Is it an act of murder? Is it an act of, is, you know, or as I think Cooper would probably say, it's both and, and more. Mm. It's a sexual act. I mean, you know, one of the things that strikes me about Full Metal, I mean, Kubrick is clearly obsessed with sexuality. And you, you're reminded of that when you see Eyes Wide Shut again. But but how many of his films, sex is a the, the a very, very primal, primal theme. Um, I mean, Lolita was way out there for its time. 
you know, all the the phallic imagery and stuff in, in Doctor Strange Love and the names, you know, Buck Turgidson and, mm-hmm. you know, Merck and Muffley for the president. I mean, sex really goes through all of his movies. Um, and, you know, I think Full Metal Jacket, when you look at that film, is very much about male sexuality, which is not discussed that often, but, you know, they end... You know, there's all the to talk about Mary. You know, fingering Mary Jane Rottencrotch at home, and 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 you know, it, it it often comes back to men's sexuality expressed in violence uh, and expressed in war. And you know, there's the scene with the hooker, but I mean, that last scene where they, you know, I don't think it's an accident that they're killing a girl, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that that killing is you know of a, of, 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 of they're killing a female. They're penetrating her with a bullet. If you want to be really kind of Freudian and and obnoxious about it, I mean, there's. But I feel like you know that's another a- aspect, particularly of Full Metal Jacket, maybe more than Paths of Glory. But even Paths of Glory, I mean, it's interesting that you know he refuses to let the sexual element go away on the more human side. The very end of Paths of Glory, you know, is is such uh, you know with it, the, that where 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 you've got her singing and. The, the soldiers crying. I mean, it's not sexual in the obvious sense, but when she comes out, it's wolf whistles, cat calls, and it's the connection between male and female that brings back the humanity to those men. There's also the line, um, oh, I forget which character says, you know, the weirdest thing when they're waiting to be executed, the weirdest thing is that I haven't had a single sexual thought. Um, so even the absence of sexuality to him right. is part of, you know, I mean, that's not something, a line you'd expect to hear in a movie that's about war and about men facing the death penalty. You know, it's a fascinating observation. But So for, for me, um, but particularly Full Metal Jacket, I know when I saw a few years ago, I was amazed at how much through that film, you know, um, sexual language, sexual images, sexual things were really part of this male world, you know. Well, uh, how do you my think... My rifle, this is my gun, you know, and the confusion in men between, you know, a penis and a rifle, and and the fact that you know you're yeah. kind of equating them. And, and there's even that scene in the in the drill the drill camp when they're this is my rifle, this is my gun, and they're grabbing their their crotch. And, right, they're grabbing yeah. their crotches, and, and oh, and 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 in some ways it's saying yes, these are two different things, but of course in a in a sort of bigger way it's also saying they're not. Yeah, and they're the same thing. And to me that yeah that that. That scene is kind of one of the big themes that runs through that movie, and yet I haven't seen people talk about much. But you know, when I look at that movie, it seems like really like, wow, this is really a fascinating, especially in the light of then looking at something like Eyes Wide Shut or whatever. I mean, it makes you realize how much male sexuality in particular really, really, you know, obsessed Kubrick and and ran through all of his movies. Well, having um, having yeah. just revisited Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, when you when you think about the sexuality in that film, which is not uh, portrayed erotically. Uh, I mean, what do you think his his point of view was on sexuality there? Well, in some ways, I mean, this time through, what I was, you know, it seemed to me a film among other things about the, again, almost comic absurdity of sexuality, particularly in men, and how simplistic it is, and how you know uh, Tom Cruise's character, you know, goes out to try to get laid and basically. Is thwarted at every step, and 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 thinks he shouldn't be. I mean, you know, I mean, he holds up his doctor card as if he's a cop, and he thinks he's a man of power. He thinks he's a man of you know, of virility. And yet, by the end of that film, none of that succeeds. And the only place where sexuality really matters is with his wife. And and in, in some ways, I think it's a very romantic film, mm-hmm. which is a strange thing to say about it. But ultimately, um, the only 
sexuality that really, in the end, leads anywhere in that movie is with the person that he's emotionally connected to. Um, now you never, you know, you don't, you know, you don't see it, but there's that moment in the mirror where there's a real sex. You know, that that's the only that's the only real sex involving our main characters that we actually see. You know, everything else is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last word of the movie is we have to fuck. You know, and to me, it's really. I mean, he's sort of saying sex is a big part of what drives us, but it's also what keeps us together. It's also what allows us to bond. It also is what, um, and and again, that duality, that mystery that we all fantasize sexually, we all imagine this, sex, this sort of other sexual existence, but would we really want it? Or is what we're really looking for in sex human connection? Um, and as much as, you know, there are these wild sex orgies and there's these hookers that he meets and, it's all, as you say, very unerotic. And, you know, the most erotic things in the movie really are looks between between the character and his wife. Um, and that's the only place that you, I think you feel real erotic charge as opposed to this kind of weird, disembodied mm-hmm. sexual charge. But it's almost, it's almost sexual without being erotic. Uh, you know, for all the pomp of that, of that great set piece of the party, it's very, I mean, the sex itself is just, laughable and you know it's all these masks and things and it's sort of fascinating but it's it's so removed from humanity that it's almost meaningless on a sexual level there's also you know it's in most of his films and it's it's in eyes wide shut as well there's this distrust of power of powerful institutions or or people in power i mean that seems to be an ongoing theme for him as well yeah, no, and I think that goes back, again, you see it in Fear and Desire, um, you see it in Eyes Wide Shut, and you see it in just about every movie in between. Uh, I mean, even 2001 has elements of it, you know, that that the government was keeping secrets from the astronauts in the middle of their mission, and, that you know, it's part of why Hal goes mad, because he's in a position of power that, you know, and keeping secrets and having to function living a lie. Uh, and I think... Uh, again, what so makes Kubrick though so interesting is that he's not an anarchist. I mean, I think there are probably filmmakers, you know, I think Godard or whatever, there's often a point of view that society by nature is almost a negative creation and that, you know, without, short of anarchy you can't, there's no possibility for, for human happiness. Um, I think Kubrick's much more, again, nuanced than that, and that's I think, what makes his film so eminently over, you know, rewatchable a thousand times because he's not answering the questions. He's clearly has a distrust of power. Clearly, in in all the films, power is misused over and over again. Innocent people are the victim of power. And yet, I don't feel watching his movies that he's saying, so we should just all become Alex on speed mm-hmm. and live as savages and do whatever our own instincts do, tell us to, because our own instincts are also worthy of mistrust. And that's the thing. People often talk about the mistrust of power of his films, but he also mistrusts the choices of the individual. Mm. Um, you know, it's not like he's purely this libertarian. Um, so he's fascinating, because he's basically posing this conundrum, which is that when you organize a society, inevitably you're going to have people in power abusing it, and inevitably they're going to be victims underneath. And yet, if you don't organize the society, we are still basically creatures driven by some very bestial instincts. So how do we function? And and what makes the film so fascinating is he doesn't answer. And I don't believe that he thinks he has an answer. He's just, again, posing questions. 
Well, and they're they're the questions that will never die as long as there's a humankind. And I think that sure. I think that that's a big reason why his films will always survive. And they survive in a very special way because earlier you mentioned the the kind of the 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 savagery of expectations because you you go into certain you win the certain Kubrick films and you expected one thing and you got something completely different whether it be the shining or eyes wide shut and then it takes years for you to kind of reconsider and go back and oh that's that might be what he was trying to do and i think that's finally happening with eyes wide shut i think it happened a couple of years ago with the shining and it's happening yeah. now with eyes wide shut i sense that well, really, you know, very few of Kubrick's films were immediately critically embraced without question. I mean, certainly 2001, you know, it's fascinating when you go back and read the reviews for that, you know, how negative much of the critical reaction was to it and how mixed public reaction was to it. Um, there, you know, I think it was the New York Times that, did, you know, dismissed uh, Dr. Strangelove as, you know, a one-joke film that wears out its welcome pretty quickly. I mean, it, it's it's really interesting how much his films have all needed time to really achieve the status of the deep classics that they are. Um, you know, there, there have always been some groups of people that embrace them immediately, but but you know, they 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 deepen with time and with consideration. And I think that again is, I mean, maybe not unique, but it's certainly highly unusual. Although you know, if you think about other art forms, not so much so at all. I mean, think about, think about how many great painters, you know, were not mm-hmm. appreciated even in their own lifetimes. I mean, at least Kubrick got during his lifetime, you know, his films became classics relatively quickly compared to, say, Van Gogh's paintings. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he has that, he had that at least going for him in terms of his own experience, that that it may have taken, you know, five or ten years for people to realize that, you know, 2001 was one of the great films ever made, but it happened at least while he was around to, to see that happen. Yeah, Absolutely. Do you uh, just a couple of more quick questions for you? I'm I'm wondering if you knew if you know about the the various theories involving The Shining because there's been a whole a whole study of The Shining in all these different corners. Uh, I mean, pe- actually, I I I don't know. I'd be interested to hear about them. Well, they've made I they've actually made a movie about many of the theories involving it, but uh, called Room Two Thirty Seven. I think it just opened in the oh, which UK. Is, yes, which I'm I'm very anxious to see. I'm actually very curious about that. Well, we had a, a lot of those people in the film. We had them on the show, and and we spent an hour talking about the various theories. But but here's what I found most interesting. I mean, because you we talked about duality a little bit ago, and I think that mm-hmm. duality is just all all the way through The Shining. But there's also the question is how much of it is spirit, is supernatural and how much of it is in his twisted psyche. Um, and it's interesting that every time he sees an apparition, it's in front of a mirror. And then there's mm-hmm. there's the scene where he walks down the hall to the gold room. There's something like three mirrors on the wall. Every time he passes one, he has this visceral, physical reaction. I mean, it's obvious as soon as he passes mm-hmm. it. And so it, it's kind of like the, the the demon within, and the hotel brings that out within him. I mean, do you find truth in that? Yes, although there's one critical choice in the film yeah. that, to me, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure you know what it is, which is the unlocking of the door, uh-huh. um, which to me is a bit of a, okay, you're saying there is something going on here that is beyond that is beyond just what's going on in in Nicholson's character's head, uh, which is fascinating to me because the first couple times I saw the story, that really bothered me. I mean, it really sort of, because I love the idea that I don't know what's real and what isn't here. Um, 
And then the other thing being that that last image, that photo on the wall, you know, which says, well, if it's only in his head, what's what is he doing in a photo that was you know taken in the 1930s? Um, so to me, again, the film has an open question. Um, I, you know, I think clearly a lot of this is in his head. Clearly, a lot of it is coming from him. But I don't. I think the film does take a, a fairly clear position on even just a literal level that it's not all in his head. And, and Kubrick's not, you know, was a smart enough man that he knew what those couple of clues would mean. And I think you look at those and you go, yes, this is not purely his own experience. There is something larger here. Mm-hmm. And that's why that, that photo at the end is so important. And that's why that moment when that door opens is so important. Because those are not, those are not things that are just about somebody hallucinating. Um, and to me, that's really that opens up the film to saying you have to at least go beyond it's all in his brain. Not that some of it's in his brain, not that his brain is part of it all, but it's not purely that. I think based on that evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really does throw a wrench <laughs> in that theory that the freezer door unlocking from the outside, uh, and it's it's all, you can almost sometimes feel Kubrick toying toying with you. I mean, you, yes. you think that it's this, but, you know, how about this? Well, and I think The Shining is a very playful film. I mean, I, I think of it as a black comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I I don't think of it more as a horror film. I think of it as a black comedy about the nuclear family, a mm. black comedy about writer's block, a black comedy about creativity, and a black comedy, if one can make one, about the space-time continuum. Mm. <laughs> and, you know where we exist in the universe and, and what is really the nature of time and what is the nature of individual personality and, you know, are we always here or, you know, are, is this moment only this moment or does it exist independently at all times? I mean, you know, this is a guy who spent a lot of time reading a lot of, you know, heavy-duty physics and metaphysics, and, and, I, but I, and I think he is playfully dealing in The Shining with all of those issues. And that's, again, part of why I think The Shining is such a remarkable movie is that, you know, these are issues that most films wouldn't even touch in a really serious, you know, college thesis sort of way. And here Kubrick is toying with them with a sense of playfulness and, 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 and fun. Um, and, and I think that's part of what makes that film so remarkable is, you know, on the surface it's a, it's a, it's a simple horror movie. And, you know, underneath it's, I think, hardly what it is at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a you know about fathers and sons. I think it's about men and women. I think it's about all these things. But I also think it's about very huge, you know, physical and metaphysical concepts, but done with a smile and a twinkle in the eye. And there's also a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know. If you, I think that Kubrick set out to make his version of a horror film, and so he put everything that he found horrific in the world in the film. And there's also it also speaks to to racism. I mean, I I see that in the film, and with all oh, the sure. American Indian themes, and you know, uh, genocide, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's such a fascinating, dense movie. I mean, there's so much in that film. It's an amaz- amazing film. But and, and like and like all of his films, it's also just eminently watchable. Oh yes. it has all that yes. without feeling like it's good for you. And that's what that's what I think makes his films to me so damn wonderful. Yeah. I mean. Fun to watch. I mean, they—they're, you know, that image of that door opening and that blood filling that corridor, the elevator door opening. It's just an incredible image. Every time you see that image, it, it just has an effect on you, and it's thrilling, and it's upsetting, and it's, it's surreal, and it's 
you know, amazing. And so, you know, he manages to deal with these very heavy-duty themes, but it just never feels like, I mean, you know, I've seen some wonderful films that I've really enjoyed, but that, you know, you feel like you're sitting through reading somebody's college thesis paper on philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you never feel that with Kubrick. They're they're very, he managed to be both an entertainer and a showman and a deep, 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 deep thinker at the same time. And I think that's, uh, God, that's a hard thing to do. You know, how many artists have done that in history? I mean, you know, a handful in any given medium. You know, I mean, certainly Shakespeare did it. You know, I mean, Shakespeare managed to be wildly entertaining while plumbing the depths of the meaning of life and human nature. And, I mean, there's, there's, you know, handfuls of people, but it's not really common because it's probably damn hard to pull off. Um, you know, uh, you know, and the fact that he did it film after film after film, I, mean, I think I think most filmmakers would feel thrilled if they made one film in their body of work that approached that level of operating on so many levels. It is amazing. And Kubrick did it over and over and over and over again, which is just just amazing. I mean, people complained about how long he took between films, but but look how much movie you get in his movies. <laughs> like, They'll live That's forever. A really great point and a really good way of looking at it. I, I mean, I, I've never heard somebody say that before, but it's the second you say it, it seems obviously true yeah. that you're getting films that took years to make because they are so rich and dense and have been constructed in such a amazingly multi-layered, thoughtful way. And, and that's a really, really, really good insight because people always talk about the time between projects and, and they always talk about it just in terms of, oh, you could never find what he wanted to say or what he wanted to do, but I wonder if it's also that, that he needed the gestation time to accomplish what he did. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a really good point. Let me just ask you one more question. You've been so great with your time. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I'm, I'm having fun, so I'm. That's a, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, this is this. Is, I, I love geeking out about movies with you. Um, but you know, there's also the thought that his films complement one another. I mean, there, there's almost like you, you can watch them as one big movie. I mean, Strange Love ends with the annihilation of the world. It begins anew with 2001. You see the face of the of the of the star baby at the end of 2001, and then you're greeted with the face of Alex in close up. And you know it's very interesting to view these as one long movie. That keeping that in mind, do you think that Eyes Wide Shut is unfortunate as it is that it was his last film? But do you think it's kind of an ideal ending to his career? Um, that's in place. First of all, it's a really interesting observation and one that I will admit I had never made that, that connection between the ends and beginnings of those films. So I think it's a really interesting connection. Um, you know, I have I, the Eyes Wide Shut question is an interesting, complicated, mixed one for me. I mean, you know, uh, because yes, in some ways it sum, it summarizes a lot of his themes, and I love I do love that the last moment of any Kubrick film is mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman saying, "We need to fuck." Mm-hmm. Um, because to me that encap- that does encapsulate something. You know, it's shocking, it's honest, it's human, it's funny, it's romantic, it's true, it's complicated, it's not what you expect. It's you know, I mean, it it, it does that last line encapsulates so much of what he did as a filmmaker. You know, you think about it afterwards. The movie just sort of ends. It goes to black, and you go like, "Whoa, okay." Um, that was wild and weird and 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 funny and 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 but but actually kind of a happy ending, but also a very sad ending. I mean, she's practically got tears in her eyes, and so I think it does encapsulate a lot of his themes in in one moment, and certainly the theme the film does. 
you know, on the other hand, I'm always frustrated watching the film in that he didn't get to finish the film, and I do think that there, that you that I do feel that watching the movie. You know, I mean, he was so meticulous in his post-production work, and in two of the cases, you know, went back and re-edited the film even after they were released. Sure. I mean, I was lucky enough that I saw The Shining opening day and I saw 2001 opening weekend, so I, I actually saw, I've seen the footage that... You saw the ending. Although, I saw the ending. Wow. Um, I saw Barry, you know, Barry Nelson in, in, in Shelley Duvall's hospital room, and um, and then it was gone. Um, so given that he, you know, continued to do work on films through the end, I always, I can't help but wonder with Eyes Wide Shut what the differences would have been. I mean, I think it's a great film and stands on its own. But I do, there is part of me that just goes, you know, part of his process was not finished on that movie. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, I'm not as able to look at it as a summary because I feel like I don't know that that final project would be the final product he would have created. I agree. It was, in you know, certainly there were people close to him and, you know, who loved him and knew him, who um, took it over the finish line and make it work beautifully as a movie. But would there have been enough scenes that would have been edited differently, trimmed differently, Music put different places. I mean, a lot of things remain to be done at the moment that he died, and that to me means it's it's and it's and it's sort of that great. It, it's sort of horrible and sort of great because it's appropriate for him that he went out in a bit of an enigma. Mm-hmm. That his last film is both an amazing movie and yet yet not quite completed. And as somebody who spent his career answering questions you can't answer, <laughs> even the physics of his last movie are a question you can't answer, which is. How close is Eyes Wide Shut as we know it to the film that would have existed if he had lived even another yeah. six months? Yeah. Is it 1% different? Is it 25% different? Um, you know, I, that's to me a fascinating and, again, unanswerable enigma. So even even his life and career, you know, kind of proves the validity of his of his artistic questioning. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. You know, my my gut tells me that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the content is as he intended, uh, the form might have been just a bit different. I mean, I, I do think he would have tightened up a lot of things here and there. I, I don't... Well, and those changes make, make big differences. I mean, uh-huh. you know, you, you take out a scene, you take out a line, you take out... It's amazing. I mean, there's, there's, an, there's a filmmaking cliche which is utterly true, which is, you know, if you change one line or one shot in the editing room, you've got to rewatch the entire film to see how it works. Mm-hmm. Because... Everything informs everything else, and especially with a filmmaker as dense as Kubrick. I mean, maybe not when you're doing something dopey, but when you're doing something that's kind of got the intellectual and emotional depth and complexity and rigor of his work, you know, if he had trimmed two minutes out of Eyes Wide Shot, it might feel like a tremendously different movie, and thematically tremendously different movie. You know, you might have been pointed to look at certain elements of that story much more and other elements much less. There's um, there's also something um and and because since you're a great actor yourself and you've you've directed such phenomenal phenomenal actors you, you could offer probably great insight into this. When I think of Eyes Wide Shut and I think of the use of a superstar like Tom Cruise in Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Uh Tom Cruise is essentially someone that we're used to seeing as the as the all-American go-getter, the guy that gets things done. Um in Eyes Wide Shut He's used as more of a passive voyeur, which is really yeah. interesting way, way to use Tom Cruise. What do you think and, about... And ultimately sort of impotent in a way. Yes, I mean, yes. sexually and metaphysically, you know, um, he's a guy who can't affect anything. He even tries, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the world kind of laughs at him. 
Absolutely. And I'm wondering, to put that in the context of a larger question, what do you think generally of his, of his use of actors and the performances he pulled out of them? Well, it's fascinating because he does something that I think a lot of people try to do and fail at as, as directors. He actually did it. He used actors and sometimes went against their strengths or even actors like, let's face it, Ryan O'Neill is not a brilliant actor. Mm. But I feel like he used sometimes actors quote-unquote weaknesses to help. I mean, I think Tom Cruise can often have a somewhat distanced feeling to him. You know, I mean, he's he's a movie star. You know, he doesn't tend to come off on screen like just a guy. You know, there's something that's got that movie star thing. And putting him in this situation and making that character impotent would be very different than if you had, um, you know, Sean Penn play that role. Um, and... On a certain level, Sean Penn would be the more obvious choice because he's probably the more nuanced actor. Or the new, you know, but it wouldn't have had the power of seeing somebody that you already have these associations with going through this experience. And I think seeing somebody who kind of became our symbol of a kind of sexy movie star guy be unable to get laid mm-hmm. is sort of part of what makes the film work and gives it both its comedy and its weirdness and its sense of tension. Um, whereas if you just had like a wonderful, great actor, but that we didn't see in that kind of you know, sort of uh, cinematic, erotic, ideal way of, you know, this beautiful couple. Um, I think a lot of the questions the film asked might have felt very different. Um, You know, it felt more like a Bergman film and less like a Kubrick film. Right. Um, But I think Kubrick is sort of busy playing with more than just the kitchen sink reality of this marriage by taking these two incredibly gorgeous people, and Tom Cruise, where we have all this baggage, even more than Nicole Kidman, you know, of who he is and what he is, and then twisting that. He's adding layers to his movie successfully um, that that very few other actors would have brought. It would be like casting, you know, whatever, Cary Grant in that role, in the, you know, if you'd made the film in the 1950s. Not that you could have made that film in the 1950s, but I mean, that would be very, it's just very different than, than, than casting Marlon Brando. It's making a different statement. Right. And Kubrick was somebody who actually sometimes went for a quote-unquote lesser performer or performance and yet, when he was done, it meant more because of it. Mm. Um, you know, I think Ryan O'Neill's very, very this sort of callow nature of his screen presence, the fact that he isn't somebody who screams depth, feeds enormously into the story of this man's desire to find power and wealth and meaning in his life that he doesn't have. Um, if you had an actor who brought this tremendous inner life to Barry Lyndon, I don't know that you would have quite as much understood why he was so obsessed with all these trappings that were so shallow that that he chased to the point where ultimately it, it came back on him and destroyed him. Um, and there's, but, and there's something kind of inherently unextraordinary about the character anyway of Barry Lynch. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, and, and, and those are things, though, that I think take a master's hand to pull off because normally what you just would get would be not such a great performance. Mm-hmm. And like, gee, too bad they didn't get somebody really good in this role. And with Kubrick, you know, and I think, and I think Tom Cruise is a very good actor. I mean, I think you look at his work in things like Magnolia and you realize that, you know, he, he is, I think sometimes by his own choices of what he chooses to do, um, but I think, you know, he has a lot of abilities that are, that are untapped. Yeah. But still, he has he cho- chosen to carefully cultivate a certain persona, and Kubrick really used that but to turn it on its head. Um, and I think he did that often in his casting. I mean, you're casting very anonymous actors in 2001. I'm sure 
you know, given his stature as a filmmaker, he could have gotten anybody to play those astronauts. Mm-hmm. He could have gotten famous people. He could have gotten, again, great, great actors. He chose to t- pick very anonymous actors. I mean, Gary Lockwood was a guy doing mostly kind of TV, episodic stuff, and, you know, fine, but, you know, no evidence that he was a great, great actor. Um, and yet, again, part of the point he was making used that. And while that seems like an easy idea, I, I feel like people try it sometimes and it doesn't work at all. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm usually the theory as a filmmaker, just get the best damn actor you can get because that's what's going to bring life to your, to your material. Um, but I think Kubrick was, was brilliant enough that he could literally transcend that. Mm. You know, every time I talk about him, I just... I just think about how much I miss him. Like you know, I, I, I we we need his voice in movies. But I but I do feel I I mean I he, I you know it's you know I never met the guy but I I I when he died I felt a very very deep sense of loss. Mm. I mean that was it was probably as personal a sense of loss uh, of someone I didn't know as I've ever felt. Now I mean I I, I was too young to experience the Kennedy and King and mm-hmm. Kennedy Bobby Kennedy assassinations. On a deeper level, I was a kid. I mean, I was aware that something bad had happened, you know, with with the King, with, with Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, but I couldn't really take it in. But but in terms of later years, uh, as an adult, certainly, I don't remember anybody else's death really upsetting me the way that his death did, um, and feeling really a, a, a sense of personal loss, and and on an agree level, a sense of no, he's too young. You know, there's there's another film or two in there. Um, yeah, how how could Kubrick movie. die? You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly not before he was 95 and made a couple more movies. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, because he was clearly a very uh, active 70. I mean, it wasn't like he sort of retired and then died. I think that would have felt very different. You know, if he was somebody who at 70 was in ill health and kind of wasn't really doing anything anymore, and mm-hmm. I think it would have been sad, but it would have felt more of a kind of elegiac sad. But this was kind of this shocking sort of, wait a minute, he's in the middle of creating. Mm. You know, don't don't rip us, don't rip him away from us now. Um, because I think he is such a rare artist, yeah. Uh, and and I think we've got to really appreciate those when we can, because they're they're you know they're they're rare and they're part of the things that make life worth living. Well, um, Keith, let me tell you, I appreciate you very very much. I always have such a great time talking to you, and keep keep me up to date about your projects and and when those come to fruition, when your project with Mr. Nolan comes to fruition. Please come back and tell us all about it, because I know it's probably very secretive at, at this stage. Oh, it is. The, na- the nature of uh, the nature of dealing with Chris is that everything is, ve- you know, very, very underwrapped. And I love um, that. I love that. Yeah. Well, and I think he's smart. I mean, he's very, he is very smart because, you know, I mean, this does have, and I, I am allowed to say that it has thriller elements and all that stuff. And he just said, yeah. And the second people start hearing about the story, you know, they'll never experience it in the same way as if they don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. So he just believes in guarding that, and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, I, you know, and, and anything he's involved with, there's always a lot of curiosity around. So, you know, he just said to me right at the beginning, you know, I don't want you showing the script to agents and managers and, you know, and even the people you normally would. He said, you know, this is, I, I don't want this leaking out so you know we've been working on it in a pretty you know there's a couple of executives at the studio who've read it and you know um but it's 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 i think i think it's really a smart way to go especially in a place like hollywood where the second something the second the script is on somebody's desk it's on everybody's desk yeah i mean that's the weird thing that you know now you know with electronic media is that you know you email a script to one person you email it to a thousand and you email it to a thousand and it's read by ten thousand so well and and you know Keeping with the theme of tonight's today's show, it's a very Kubrickian way to go. 
Uh, yes, and, yeah. and, and I, you know, I sense that, that Chris has amazing um, admiration of Kubrick. I mean, we haven't talked about it at great length, but I think, you know, certainly from comments and and, and looking at his films, I mean, mm-hmm. you certainly see a somewhat similar approach in terms of trying to combine the visceral and the emotional and challenge an audience and yet entertain an audience. And I mean, I, I feel like he's definitely somebody who, you know, when, when he has the time, which he. He's, you know, I'm lucky when I can get him to talk about our script because he's like busy doing 20 things at once. But I would love to sit down and talk to him about about Kubrick and sort of what his take on Kubrick was and his and, and how much Kubrick did or didn't influence him. Oh, my God. 